You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself embellished of God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you uh, again for our moms and um, for each one who is here. And we just pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would take this scripture and that you would work it into our hearts that we would be a people who leave here today not just knowing about forgiveness um, but that we would each truly experience forgiveness completely totally in a way that transforms our lives for eternity i ask this in Jesus' name amen you may be seated so here's a question for you when is the first time that you remember experiencing guilt when is the first time you remember feeling guilty? When is the first time you remember that because either you did something you weren't supposed to do or you didn't do something that you were supposed to do, as a result, you experienced this emotion called guilt? I remember whenever I was in second grade, I was in Miss Reddick's class, and she had to go next door to the cl- uh, talk to a teacher, and she made it very clear, hey, when I leave, I don't want anybody to get out of their seats. I don't want anybody talking to anybody else. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity uh, to somehow become the class clown and get everybody to laugh at me. This was 1990. It was uh, the year that Family Matters came out. Anybody remember that sitcom, Family Matters, Carl Winslow, Steve Urkel, that whole crew, right? And so I just thought, you know, I would kind of go into this little stick and I would act like Steve Urkel and get everybody to laugh. And so it was working really well. Kids were laughing, but then Miss Reddick walked into the room. Now, I'll never forget, she looked right at me and here I was at this point now standing on top of my desk and pulling up my pants as high as I could and doing my best interpretation of Steve Urkel. And so Miss Reddick, she goes, and no questions asked, she grabs the paddle, she calls me out into the hallway, and she says, Mr. Pickney, um, were you doing what I think you were doing? And I was like, what do you think I was doing? She said, I think you were acting like Steve Urkel. And I said, no, ma'am, I was just pulling up my pants. Uh, just like the worst like excuse ever. And she said, okay, well, listen, because you not only disobeyed me, but you also lied to me, uh, you're going to get a paddling. And I remember, like receiving my licks and as I was being paddled for the first time ever really experiencing this feeling of guilt and I wish I could say that as an adult like I no longer have to deal with guilt but the truth is because even though I'm a pastor I'm imperfect I'm a sinner uh, because I know there are times where where this is the right thing to do but I still do the wrong thing there are times where I still find myself regularly wrestling with guilt and my guess is today, like, because I'm in a room with imperfect people, I am not alone. I was talking with my wife this past week about this thing called mom guilt. Anybody else in here ever heard that phrase, mom guilt? Apparently that's a real 
thing. It's like this pervasive feeling that a lot of moms feel like I'm not good enough. Like I don't love my kids enough. I don't care for them enough. Or I'm going to somehow make a decision that screws my kids up for the rest of their lives or whatever it is. And therefore, as a result, there's a lot of moms who experience guilt. Uh, I was thinking of a man who was in our first service uh, this week who I texted earlier in the week. And I said, you know, how can I pray for you? And his response was, not even knowing what my sermon is this week, his response was, please just pray that I can forgive myself. This is a man who, because of his sin, had hurt his family uh, a long time ago. And yet, despite the fact that his sin was, was not recent at all, he still experiences guilt that feels as close to him as even the skin on his body. And maybe for some of you, you can relate today. For some of you, maybe because of something that you have done in the past, because of some sin you have committed because of a bad decision you made that has hurt someone else or, or you feel like hurt the heart of God, you still live with this guilt. And what I want you to realize today is that if you do not learn how to deal with this guilt in a healthy way, if you do not get the weight of guilt removed off of your chest, it will slowly but surely crush the life out of you. I think of a King David. King David in Psalm 38. Many of you know King David, right? Slayed Goliath. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet David was also a sinner. And after David had an affair with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, he was experiencing a lot of guilt, and rightly so. Uh, by the way, side note, it's important that you know this. There are two different kinds of guilt. I don't know if you knew this or not. There's false guilt and there's moral guilt. False guilt is when you feel guilty for something you don't need to feel guilty for. Okay, and so an example I gave to the early service was yesterday for Mother's Day, I told my wife, I mean, take some time to yourself. Go do something that energizes you, which for her is running. That's crazy to me. I don't understand that at all, but that's her thing. So she wanted to go running and she wanted to go to the farmer's market. She thought that was great, but she then told me later, I felt guilty for leaving the house. Now, here's the thing. She shouldn't have felt guilty for leaving the house. Did she do anything wrong for leaving the house? Did my wife do anything wrong for leaving the house? No. <laughs> No, she didn't sin by leaving the house. And yet, that is a, a version of a false form of guilt that some of us just experience. I don't even know why I feel guilty. I just feel guilty. David here is not experiencing false guilt. He's experiencing moral guilt. He has sinned, and he has sinned big time. He should feel guilty for that. But because he's not dealing with his guilt in a healthy way, listen what happens to him as a result. He says this. This is Psalm 38, verse 3. He says, There's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. It's what guilt feels like sometimes. It's just heavy weight. I can't even lift it. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low all the day long. I go about mourning. Listen to this. My back is filled with searing pain and there is no health in my body. His body is literally betraying him because of his guilt. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. You see what David's saying? He's saying, look, when we live with guilt, we live with pain. There is a price to pay for living with guilt. And this isn't just what the Bible says. Like, this is what even psychologists are now saying. Luke Lou Allen, he's a a therapist in our church, home, he owns a Hope and Healing, a clinic here in Perigold and in Jonesboro. And he sent me an article this past week uh, from Psych Central. And it says, according to psychologist Dr. Ellen Albertson, listen to this. Chronic or persistent guilt is linked to the following. Anxiety disorder, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and eating disorders. 
And so whether it's King David or it's Psych Central, both are saying the same thing, that if we do not learn how to deal with our guilt from our sin in a healthy way, our life will fall apart. Not just mentally, not just emotionally, not just physically, but also spiritually. And therefore the question this morning is, how do we deal with our guilt? Because we all experience it, right? Like unless you're a sociopath and like no offense, like that's just reality. Like, like we all experience guilt. And how do we go from feeling guilty to feeling completely and totally forgiven in such a way that it actually sets us free to experience the life that God created us to live? And according to this passage today, the main thing the preacher in Hebrews wants you to see is this. Your guilt can only be erased by God's grace. That's it. Like that's pretty much the message in one line. This is the key. This is the way to move forward. This is how you get unstuck. It's how you go from feeling burdened and heavy laden to instead feeling forgiven and free. Listen to me very carefully, guys. If guilt is your problem, God's grace is your solution. And that's what the preacher is just going to say right here in our text. If you look back with me at Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 1 through 10, the preacher just went on this rant talking about the tabernacle. I'm not going to get into all of it. If you want to come and talk about the tabernacle today, I can talk to you at length about it. If that's kind of your jam, we can talk about the tabernacle. But basically, here's what he's saying. Back in the Old Testament, if the people wanted to be in a right relationship with God, if they wanted to, 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 to be atoned for, if they wanted to, to you know, somehow be forgiven of their sins, what had to happen in the Old Testament is they had to go to this place called the tabernacle. It was constructed by Moses and some of his helpers and basically the tabernacle was this earthly representation of a heavenly reality and in the center of this tabernacle is the holy of holies it's the place where it was kind of you know they 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 assumed god's presence was and what would happen is if you sin in the old testament and you wanted to make things right with god you would go to your priest you would confess your sin and then after confessing your sin they would either make a blood sacrifice or they would offer a gift to god on your behalf or they would you know perform some sort of like ceremonial kind of washing ritual And that all was great, but here's the problem. According to the preacher, right here in verse 9, look what he says with your own eyes. Chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Despite the fact that these priests were constantly engaging in this religious activity, verse 9, he says, They were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, they were not able to get rid of the people's guilt that was caused as a result of their sin. So just imagine for a moment what this would have been like for you. Imagine living during this time, and and maybe if it's helpful, think about the last sin you just committed. Whatever it may be. Maybe you looked at something you shouldn't have looked at. You touched something you shouldn't have touched. Maybe you gossiped. Maybe you were judgmental and you looked down on others. Maybe you were greedy and materialistic rather than generous. Whatever it may be. Think about the last sin you committed. You're impatient with your spouse, your kids. I don't know what it may be, but imagine you have sinned and you know you have sinned. You feel guilty for your sin. And so what do you do? You run to church. You go to the tabernacle, you go to the priest and you say, I have sinned. Here's what I've done. And the priest says, cool, thanks for letting me know. I'm going to go shed the blood of this animal or I'm going to go offer this gift or I'm going to try to do some sort of thing where I try to wash you clean. And they do all of this stuff. But here's the thing. Despite all of the religious activity, despite sitting in what probably would have been like the longest church service you can ever imagine, 
According to the preacher, you would still go home feeling just as guilty, if not more guilty, than when you came to church to begin with. The preacher says this is what it was like for those in the Old Testament. Despite all of the work and all the sacrifice and all this activity that was taking place, the priests were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And why is that? Well, because in verse 10 and verse 13, he tells us. Because the tabernacle, plain and simple, was not able to touch the hearts of the people. The priests were able to, to maybe like get the outside of a person clean, but they weren't able to get the inside of a person clean. And so despite all of this, this work and this sacrifice and religion, the people continue to, uh, continue to live with a guilty conscience, continue to live under the weight of the sin that they had committed. And listen to me. My guess is in a room this size, that's where some of you are right now. That there are some of you in this room because of sins you have committed, whether it been 24 hours ago or 24 years ago, you continue to live with this deep sense of guilt and therefore you inwardly beat yourself up and you hold yourself hostage to things that you have done. And you need to know today, listen to me very carefully, you will never find forgiveness in the tabernacle. You will never find forgiveness for your sins through good works. You will never find forgiveness of your sins through your own work and religious activity and sacrifice. Several years ago, I went to the mosque in Jonesboro. I went with Philip Greer. Philip, shout out to you. Uh, Philip and I, we we're friends with uh, some Muslims, and they would come to our Sunday gathering with us. And so we were like, hey, let's go to the mosque with you. And it was actually a really good experience, great food. Uh, I still remember those dates. And so they were great. Um, but here's the thing. Before you can enter to the mosque, which you see right here, um, you know, they're, they're doing their prayers, they're worshiping their God. And, and before you go into the mosque, you have to perform or basically this, this cleaning ceremony. I don't know how else to say it. And so, like, you have to, for example, wash behind your ears. I had to, do, I had to wash behind my ears. I had to wash my hands. I had to somehow figure out a way to wash my feet, which let me tell you was not easy because I wear skinny jeans and I couldn't get my foot up in the sink. And so like literally my Muslim friend is like throwing water on my foot. Like, you know, people are behind me, you know, Philip's like, this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever been a part of in my entire life. And so, but for our Muslim friends, here, here's their deal. They feel like you have to clean the outside in order for you to somehow be clean on the inside, and you have to be clean on the inside before you can go stand before God and get in his presence. And that's really not that much different than how some of you in this room believe it is with our God. In that you believe that there is something you have to do in your own power to clean yourself up before you can enter into God's presence. That somehow you have to perform some religious ceremony to gain God's favor and forgiveness. I remember whenever I first became a Christian, I was almost 21 years old, and it, it, it's the greatest feeling in the world whenever, whenever you, you know, you, when God saves you, you feel so light, you feel so free, I mean, you're filled with an unshakable peace, but here's the thing, within a matter of days, there were some sins that I had fallen back into, some old ways of being, and when I begin to sin, I just want you to know, I begin to feel an incredible amount of guilt, sometimes you can feel more guilt after you're saved than before, because now you're just aware of all of your sins, even more than you were before, before you're kind of blind to them. 
But I begin to sin and I begin to feel conviction and I begin to feel guilty. And because of kind of this legalism that was inside of me, I begin to believe this lie that in order for me to now have a conversation with God, I've got to prove to God just how sorry I am for my sins. And so I remember writing things in my journal like, God, why don't you just kill me in my sleep? I obviously can't be pure, obviously can't be perfectly holy, I continue to sin, why don't you just take my life? I feel like, you know, if I just told God how sorry I am, then he would feel sorry for me, and he would want to talk to me, or I would, you know, do something like, I know I should pray right now, but instead of praying, I don't believe God will hear me, so I'm just going to go and read a book of the Bible, and because I really want God to know how sorry I am, I'm going to read the book of Leviticus, right, or the book of Numbers, or something like that, a really boring book, and just prove to God how much I love him, so that then he will listen to me. And listen, that's the exact same thing our Muslim friends are doing. It's the exact same thing that we see many religious people doing, people who claim to be Christians. It is this idea that I've got to do some sort of work, some sort of activity to gain the forgiveness and the favor of God on my life. And because the preacher knows that this is a temptation for every one of us, he says it's time to change the subject. It's time to stop focusing so much on you and your work, and it's time to start focusing on Jesus and his finished work. And so he says in verse 11, if you look with me, he says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, that is not a part of this creation. What is he talking about here? He's talking about how Jesus went into heaven. Right? It was the better tabernacle. It was, it was the true tabernacle. Jesus went into the presence of God. And how did he do this? Verse 12. He did not enter by the means of blood and goats and calves like the priests of the Old Testament in the kind of the copy of heaven in the, in the old tabernacle. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place. Jesus entered into the hot spot of God's presence on our behalf for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, some of you are still looking to religion. You're still looking to the tabernacle to try to get rid of your guilt. You're still looking to your good works to make you right before God. And he says, man, if that is where you are, stop trying harder to be better and trust in Jesus Christ. Look to this one who entered into heaven in the very presence of God, and he entered into the presence on your behalf, not through shedding the blood of goats and bulls, but by shedding his own blood. Jesus didn't simply make a sacrifice for you. He became a sacrifice so that we can, he says here, quote, receive an eternal redemption. What that means is that because of what Christ has done for you, no matter who you are or what you have done, when you trust in him, you can experience in Christ the forgiveness and the freedom that you so desperately need. Paul says it this way, and thank you for the amen. Sometimes I'm like, is this good news to anybody in this room? Acts 13, 38-39. Paul says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Let me just say this in here. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad it is. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven. I want to proclaim forgiveness in Jesus' name to you this morning. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you in verse 39. Through him. Listen to this. Through him. Through whom? Through Jesus. Everyone who believes. 
Everyone, all you have to do is believe. Everyone who believes is freed from every sin. Every sin. Past sin. Present sin. Future sin you've not even committed yet. Everyone who believes is free from every sin. A justification, that is a legal term Paul uses. It means to be declared right before God. You are innocent before God. You are not guilty. You are declared innocent. Through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. In other words, a justification you could never earn, you could never deserve, you could never work for. So Paul says, man, you want to be justified, you want to be declared right before God, you want to have your conscience clear, look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, confess your sins to Jesus, and know no matter how big your sins are, you can now stand before God holy, blameless, and accepted. Maybe you hear that and you're like, man, that just seems too easy. That just seems, there's got to be something more to it than that. I mean, that doesn't even seem fair. I mean... Are you saying that I can sin against a holy God? And, 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 and because of my sin, I deserve hell and I deserve wrath and I deserve death. But because I just trust in Jesus and what he's done for me, I can be fully and completely forgiven that I can get salvation, that I can get heaven. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's why it's called grace. I once heard a preacher say, grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. It's kind of cheesy, but it's memorable. Do you realize that you can receive God's riches, forgiveness, healing, redemption, everything that is true of Jesus and belongs to Jesus, the Bible says now belongs to you. Why? Because you earned it? Because you deserved it? No, because Jesus has paid your bill in full. That is the gospel. First John 1 John 1.9, it says, If we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The very thing the worshipers were looking for in the tabernacle, but they could not find, you can now have it in full because of Christ. If you go around our city right now, you will find some houses that are falling apart. Houses that are... Uh, they're, they're broken beyond repair. They're not even safe to live in. And therefore, as a result, our city is condemning these houses. They're going to eventually tear them down. It's a way of trying to make our city better, you know, more beautiful, whatever. For some of you in here, you feel like you have this sign of condemnation written over your life. You feel like you're broken beyond repair. You feel like because of sins you've committed, you've just done way too much, and therefore you're worthless, and, and, and you might as well just bulldoze my whole life. I mean, what's the point? Like, there's no way I can ever be made right before God. And if that is where you are this morning, listen, God wants to come to you through Jesus Christ, and he wants to rip that sign down. He wants to remove the notice of condemnation. He wants to replace it with this banner of affirmation so that when the inner critic comes and gets in your ear and begins to rub your face in your sins... You can then stand on the truth of the gospel and you can say with confidence, as Paul said in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, Jared. That's a good word, brother. Keep preaching, man. Keep doing it, dude. This is good stuff.
just talking to myself here. This might be a word for some of you. And it might be the whole reason God brought you here this morning. Some of you are suffering right now. You're experiencing pain right now. You're in hardship right now. And you think it's because God is punishing you for your sins. And you just need to know if you're in Christ Jesus, that's a lie from the pit of hell. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You know how I know you're not suffering for your sin? You know how I know you're not paying for your sin? Because Jesus paid for your sins. Jesus took God's wrath. Jesus took God's anger. Jesus took the punishment reserved for you. And so listen, God may be disciplining you. He disciplines those that he loves. But I can promise you this. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are not paying for your sins. It's already been paid. And there's nothing that can change that. It's finished. It's done. You're loved. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's what Paul says. It says in Romans 8, 1, again, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 38 and says this. For I'm convinced, I'm convinced. Imagine how your life would be different if you were convinced of what Paul's convinced of that I'm about to read to you. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you ever wondered what God is doing while you're sinning? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, if you're a Christian, I want you to think about this. What do you think God is doing while you're looking at pornography? What is God doing whenever you're in sin? What, what is his posture towards you? What does his facial expression look like? When I am sinning, what is God feeling? And, and there may be mixed stuff in there, I don't know, but listen, according to God himself, In this passage, even in your darkest moments, here's one thing that you can take to the bank. Even when you are sinning against God, God is still loving you. He is still pursuing you. He is still, because of your faith in Christ, continuing to show up, not with condemnation, but with compassion. And listen, because that's true, here's what that means. The next time that accuser gets in your ear, maybe it'll be tonight when you're laying your head down. That's when it can kind of happen for me, when it's all quiet and I can't like work myself or numb the pain somehow, like I'm just kind of in my head, like like whenever it is when the accuser comes to you and gets in your ear and begins to tell you how big of a sinner you are, how big of a failure you are, how broken you are, how jacked up you still are. You know what you can say with confidence? When he says you're just this big sinner, you know what you can say because of Christ? You're right. I am a really, really big sinner. But thanks be to God because of Jesus, I am forgiven. I am justified. I am redeemed. I am loved. And listen, guys, you've got to get this. If you've you've zoned out and zoned back in, as crazy as this is going to seem, listen to me. It is only when this truth settles into your heart can you begin to break free from the sin and the guilt that is robbing you right now of the life God wants to give you through Christ. Maybe for some of you, you grew up in a legalistic church. 
in a legalistic environment and you have been taught that guilt is what changes people. Guilt does not change people. God's grace is what changes people. People are not transformed because of God's law. They're transformed because of God's love. They're transformed when they know that even on their worst days, that even if everyone else turns their back on me or gives up on me, that because of Jesus Christ, God will never give up on me. You know, I I was talking to someone recently about this. Someone who was struggling with a specific sin that I used to really struggle with. and, And they were asking, how did I get freedom? How did I finally break free from this thing that had enslaved me? Let me tell you something, by the way. You give your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean that you never sin again. It doesn't mean you never wrestle with the same sins again. It doesn't happen that way. It can. That's called a miracle. The miracles are called miracles because they don't happen every single day, right? Like, it don't happen just nonstop. So you give your life to Christ, you're still going to have sins, you're still going to have issues, you're still going to have struggles, but there's specific sins in my life that I thought I would deal with until I went to my grave that God, by His grace, has broken me free from. And someone asked me, how did that happen? Because I've tried everything. Like, I was the kind of guy, like, when I felt guilt, it's like, give me another book to read, give me another podcast to listen to, give me another therapist to meet with. I would do crazy things, like put a rubber band on my wrist and pop myself with it if I sinned. None of it worked. So how did I overcome some of the sins that I was able to overcome in my life? And here is the best way I know how to tell you that God broke me free from those things. It is because I eventually came to a place where I believe that God loves me just as much after I committed the sin as he did before I committed the sin. And that may not be a very satisfactory answer for some of you. And you may be like, is that even biblical? Well, let me just read the Bible to you then. Romans 2 verse 4. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. What leads to repentance, what leads to change, more than a fear of God's condemnation, is an awareness of God's kindness. It's an awareness that because of Jesus, I am loved by God and nothing, nothing can ever separate me from that love. This, more than anything else, will transform your life. And this is what the preacher says. We'll actually end here. This is verse 14. He says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? That's what we need, is to have our conscience clean from acts that lead to death. So that what? So that, verse 14, we may serve the living God. So the preacher says, look, it's only Jesus can clear your conscience. Only Jesus can give you the forgiveness and the freedom that you long for. Only Jesus can replace that sign of condemnation with the, with the banner of affirmation. He says, look, when this truth settles into your heart, please get this, guys. If you will finally believe this message that I literally have been preaching for 10 years now. I preach the same thing every week, right? It's just about Jesus and about his grace. It's about this gospel. What the preacher says here is when this finally goes from just being another sermon where you check the box and you left and you went about your day, if it goes from here to in here, what is the result going to be? It's not going to make you spiritually lazy. It's not going to make you spiritually apathetic. You're not going to say, oh, well, if there's grace, I can just go live however I want. If that's your understanding of grace, you don't understand grace. 
when the grace of God finally settles into your heart. Remember, the preacher has been saying, what I'm worried about is some of you are going to be drifting. And what is the antidote to drifting into destruction? He says, if you will believe this grace, this gospel, rather than drifting, you will start serving. You will give your life more than ever before to serving the living God. Why? Because your heart is going to be so radically transformed by love. Love makes you do crazy things. Do you remember when you fell in love with your spouse? Right? Do you remember the stuff that you did that was nuts? Like staying awake to all hours of night and just doing all kinds of things. Like love makes people do crazy stuff. And when you experience the greatest love you could ever imagine in Jesus Christ, it will give you a passion and a drive not to sit, but to serve the living God and not to earn his love, but because you know you already are loved perfectly and completely for eternity. I was thinking this past week about the difference between Judas and Peter. Remember the stories of Judas and Peter? They both betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus, and so did Peter. Peter did it actually three times. And yet, Judas couldn't handle the guilt. They both felt very guilty, but Judas couldn't handle it. He went and killed himself. He literally hung himself. What happened to Peter? Well, he actually became one of the greatest Christian leaders in world history. So what's the difference? They both sinned. They both experienced guilt. They were both just ate up with guilt. What's the difference? Why did one kill himself and the other one become the greatest Christian leader? Well, I think it's because of what happened in Luke 22 and what happened in John 21. In Luke 22, Jesus came to Peter and he said, Peter, you think you're so tough and you're so committed and you got your life all together. But I just want you to know you're the one who's going to deny me three times. You're the one whenever I need you the most that's going to turn your back on me three times. And he doesn't leave Peter in his shame. He says, but here's the thing, Peter. I want you to know that Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. I've gone to God for you. What is he saying to him? Peter would have understood this as a Jew that we don't get. He was saying, Peter, I am your great high priest. I am going to God on your behalf. And therefore, even whenever the devil tries to come at you and wreck you with guilt, I'm going to intercede for you and I'm going to save you and I'm going to keep you. And so Peter, he... Just as Jesus says, he still denies Christ three times. Like, oh, Jesus, I would never do this, but he does it. He denies Christ three times. He then, after the death of Christ, goes fishing. It's what he had done before he met Jesus. I mean, I've blown it too big. I mean, and Jesus is dead anyway, so like, what's the point of continuing on this whole mission thing that I've been giving my life to? And while he's there fishing, Jesus shows up. The resurrected Jesus, fresh out of the grave. And I want you to just think, if you were Jesus, what would you say to Peter? After everything you just did for him, you've never sacrificed for anybody the way Jesus just sacrificed for Peter. You know, I was thinking about this this week. When I was a pastor back in 2009, I wanted to plant a church back then, but I wasn't quite ready for it, but I wanted to plant it. And Eventually, I planted a church in 2012, and I talked about, in an article, Acts 29 did an interview with me, and I talked about how my plan was to originally plant in 2009, but that was not God's plan. He needed to prepare me first. And anyways, there was a, a man who was a part of this church that I, used, that I was connected to back in 2009. He was dying of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, but he read this article. And this guy used to wear me out. Literally, every sermon I would preach, he would message me and tell me all the stuff that was wrong with my sermon. Every single sermon would wear me out. 
And he would tell me all the time how I was too young to be a pastor. I wasn't ready to be a pastor. Anyways, I'd not talked to him in years. And he read this article. He messages me. The guy's like on his deathbed, messages me and says, it was so good for my heart to read that article because it validated everything that I told you was true about you several years ago. And I'm glad you now can see what I could see in you, which you weren't ready to be a pastor at the time. And some of us, listen, we think that's the way it is with God. That God sees all this stuff and he's just trying to get your attention and he's just thrilled to death when you finally realize how big of a sinner you are, just like he realizes so he can say, I told you so. That's what we think God is like. That's not what God is like. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of God's glory. He shows up on the beach to talk to Peter and he does not say, I told you so. Instead, what does he do? He asks Peter a question. Peter, do you love me? Jesus knows the answer, by the way. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know I love you. And then Jesus responds, feed my sheep. He then asks the question again, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then a third time, there's three denials, so there's three questions that correspond. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus says again, all right, then feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing here? What Jesus is trying to say to Peter is this. Don't give up on yourself because I've not given up on you. You might have it hard to forgive yourself, but I have forgiven you already. And therefore, Peter, no matter how bad you blew it, I knew you were going to blow it. I told you you were going to blow it, but I want you to know I love you, I have forgiven you, I want to pursue you. And so, Peter, don't fall into self-pity. Don't let yourself just sit in kind of this little shame party. Don't go into hiding. Don't go back to the way things used to be, but instead keep moving forward. Keep doing, Peter, what I created and I called you to do. And if you're like, okay, that's great, but why does that matter? Because this tells you everything you need to know about the heart of God. We have a God who, rather than kicking you when you're down, he meets you where you are, and he redeems you, and he repurposes even the most broken and jacked up parts of your story. And because that is true, here's the call today. It is to look to Jesus. It's to stop beating yourself up, to stop trying to, to, to numb your guilt or to medicate your guilt or to deflect your guilt or to stuff your guilt or, or to try to, like I do, outwork your guilt. But the call today is to trust, not in your own works, but in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. I was thinking this morning, and I'll go ahead and bite the band up. I was thinking this morning about, you know, what, what, what is it that makes up the crossing church? And I was thinking, you know, the same thing that makes up the crossing church is what makes up the kingdom of God. And you know what makes up the kingdom of God? Do, do you know how you enter into the kingdom of God? Do you know what it is that makes you belong in the kingdom of God and the family of God? Listen to me very carefully and we're done. It is not your impressiveness. It is not your good works. We say this a lot and I think like some of us, we think it's somewhat of a cliche. But it's not a cliche. We say this a lot like the crossing church is just a bunch of imperfect people who are all standing in need of one perfect person together, and that person is Jesus Christ. Let's stop pretending like that's not true. We're saved by grace, and we're kept by grace. We never come to a place where we don't need the grace of God. So let's stop hiding. 
Let's stop pretending. Let's stop trying to act like we have it all together. And let's continually be reminded that, yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're broken. But thanks be to God, because of Jesus, he's accomplished everything that we need to experience forgiveness and freedom and the salvation that we long for. And let's continue to stand in need of him together. If you're here today, let me just say this. If you are... If you have never trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you right now are guilty. You are guilty. You are under condemnation. This is not a sermon that's like, go live however you want, for tomorrow there's heaven, no matter what you do. Like, trust your life to Jesus. Give your life to Him. And how do you do that? It just starts by admitting, I'm not impressive. I don't have it all together. But Jesus, I trust not in my work, in your life, in your death, in your resurrection. And if you've never done that today and you even want to know what does it look like, come talk with me. We'll have a prayer team in that back corner. They'd love to connect with you as well. With that, let's stand together. I want to pray. We'll sing a couple more songs, take communion, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much for not giving up on us. We thank you for, even though I know that you are disgusted by sin, that you are angered by sin, that we know you are holy and you are blameless and you are without fault, you still, you moved right into the middle of our mess and you came and accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. And I pray that this gospel would not become old news. Jesus, you are all that we have. You are where our hope is. I pray that there is nobody in this room or listening online today that will turn away without experiencing your complete and total forgiveness that is only found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.